Here's a cartoon of my family's murder. When I was 13, my family was murdered. The killer went from room to room in my house, slaughtering my family in the early hours of a Sunday morning in June of 2001. My father was killed first, neck sliced wide and deep as he drank his first cup of coffee. My sister was next, a pillow over her face as she lay sleeping in her room. The bed and floor were covered in bloody feathers by the time the knife was done turning her head into a crimson ruin. My mother died in the shower, a jagged piece of metal pipe being rammed through the shower curtain and her torso with enough force that she was left pinned to the far tile wall like a butterfly. I was away at band camp that summer, and wasn't due to be home for another week. I was mopping up water in the boys' bathroom when I saw my aunt at the door, eyes red-rimmed and voice trembling as she told me something had happened and I needed to go with her. I knew right away it was something terrible, but as she told me the barest versions of what happened, that someone had come into our home and murdered my family, I felt myself disconnected from everything, including her words. The next few days were just a red haze of shock and pain, and my first clear memories are over a month after I'd moved in with Aunt Judith and her husband Ernie. They were good to me. I struggled with school and friends for years afterward, but they were always patient and kind, never failing to give me second and third chances until I ran out of excuses for punishing them and hating myself. They never found out who did it or why. My parents weren't wealthy or connected. They didn't have enemies or rivals that I knew of. And while it was always possible that the killings were just random, the precision of it all didn't seem like the work of a deranged spree killer. In high school, I spent years cultivating the theory that it was just a local serial killer, but that was mainly fueled by desperation and bad internet research. I wanted to catch their killer, but even more than that, I wanted to understand why it had happened. Maybe they'd never give an answer, but if I could at least put a face and name to the person that killed my life, it'd be a start. But that never came. I wound up going to an art school for college, and between work, classes, and all the trappings that came with becoming an adult, my obsession began to fade. I'm ashamed to say it, but there are days now where I don't even think about the family that was taken from me. I work at an animation studio in the restoration department. My job is to repair and restore old or damaged footage for clients, and when possible, transfer the restored footage to a digital format for both viewing and archival purposes. A lot of people hate that kind of work. It's tedious, and while it makes a lot of money for the company, it's not flashy, like working on a new digital animation or special effects. But me? I love it. I get to take things that people once had cared about and spent a lot of time on, things that might otherwise rot away or be lost, and I get to heal them, make them new and alive again. Some people see them as just dumb cartoons, but I disagree. And if you'd asked me last week, I'd have said there wasn't a better job in the whole world. The package was... sitting on my desk last Thursday. Brown paper wrapped around what looked like the shape of a small film reel and tied with a piece of gray string. It was strange, but only a little. 
While most of the work we did was for companies looking to redistribute old assets they'd owned or had acquired on disk or streaming, occasionally a private owner with deep pockets would commission us to restore something they'd found in their grandparents' attic or something. It didn't make any difference to me where it came from. It was something new and mysterious, a potential new challenge or opportunity to see something few had ever seen before, at least not for a very long time. Sitting down my coffee, I carefully opened the package and pulled out the reel of film. I looked for some kind of notes or instructions, but there was none. That was strange. I called up to admin department, but they didn't know what I was talking about at first. When they called back a few minutes later, the woman just said it was apparently a personal package dropped off for me, not anything for a client. There was a disapproving edge to her voice, but I ignored it, thanking her and hanging up before turning back to the film. It looked to be well-preserved, no tears or cracks, and spot-checking a few frames showed no obvious signs of color shift or fading. It was just some kind of strange cartoon with an odd figure holding various sinister weapons. I didn't know why, but my heart had begun to beat faster. Normally, I would document and copy each frame before attempting to play an unknown film. It's, it's too easy to miss imperfections that can cause damage when it's run through a projector. But this wasn't a real job, and I'd seen just enough in those few frames that I wanted to watch the whole thing right away. So I locked the door to my office, threaded the film into one of the 35mm projectors in the media room, and watched in horror at what began to play. The cartoon began without any title cards or preamble. It simply showed an animated figure wearing a hooded sweatshirt or jacket entering a house. There was no sound, but the movements of the character mimicked the fluid, exaggerated motions of a character in the 1920s and 30s. Legs like slinkies encased in jello propelled him creepily along as he snuck deeper into someone's home. The figure went to the kitchen first. There he found an unsuspecting man sitting at the kitchen table, reading a book while sipping from a cup. The figure crept up behind him, waiting patiently, perhaps gleefully, until the man sat down with his coffee. Then, in one slow and fluid movement, he grasped the man's forehead and pulled it back while bringing a comically large straight razor across his neck. Cartoon blood sprayed out across the table in the far wall, but the figure and camera were already on the move again. The cartoonishness, the crude nature of the animation should have made it easier to watch, but it didn't. The killer was still moving with exaggerated, sneaking steps, but now his chest was heaving with either exertion or excitement. As he moved to the back hall, I knew what was coming, but there was nothing I could do to stop it. The figure eased into my sister's bedroom. She was supposed to be going to college in the fall, and after that, to veterinary school. She was sweet and smart and beautiful, and I loved her so much. On the film, the girl's body was spasming as the killer stabbed the pillow he'd pressed over her face again and again. When he was done, he moved on to the master bedroom and the bathroom beyond. 
blue clouds of steam boiled out from behind the shakily twitching shower curtain as the figure gestured toward the camera as though telling the audience to wait a moment or keep quiet so they didn't alert his prey. Partially unzipping his sweatshirt, he produced a long piece of pipe with a sinister edge on one end. In real life, hiding something so large would have been impossible. But in the cartoon logic of the film, I barely registered it before all thought was driven from me. As he drove the pipe through the curtain into my mother. Drawn lines of blood shot out across the wall and down into the tub while a small pale hand twitched pitifully from beyond the edge of the curtain. I was gripping my knees so hard that my hands ached, but I couldn't look away. When the screen went blank, I let out a held breath, thinking it was finally over. My mind started racing. Who would have sent it to me? The killer? After all this time? Someone else? Someone playing a sick prank by taking what happened to my family and turning it into a cartoon? Neither seemed to make much sense, but I needed to... The film flared back to life. It was in a darkened room that had been drawn with more care and detail than the scenes that had preceded it. In the center of the frame was a pool of moonlight from a nearby window, and in that glow a cartoon boy slept a troubled sleep. It was clear from the flowered comforter and the ornate porcelain lamps on the bedside tables that this wasn't a little boy's room. It was a guest room, meant for more decoration than company, and it had been hastily prepared in the face of someone unexpected calamity. I recognized that room. It had been my bedroom until I went to college, but it hadn't been decorated like that after that first... after that first night. This was the first night I was with them, the night after my family was killed. I jumped as the hooded figure suddenly appeared from the dark at the moon glow's edge. He leaned over the cartoon boy with almost theatrical malevolence, and for a moment I expected him to speak or perhaps even kill that past cartoon version of me. Instead, a dark tongue sneaked down from the shadows of his hood, trailing up the side of the cartoon boy's face and ruffling his hair. Where the tongue had traveled, there was now a deep red mark left in its wake killer raised up, his shoulders shaking silently from what might have been laughter, and then the film went dark. As it did, bright, wet pain seared across the side of my face and up to my scalp. Letting out a scream, I ran to the bathroom to wash my face. There must have been something on that film or some contaminant from somewhere, and I was having a reaction. I needed to wash that area thoroughly and then check in the mirror to see what It was the mark. The mark from the cartoon. It blazed from the side of my face like a birthmark or an old burn. But that... That wasn't possible. I didn't have any burns or birthmarks. Never had that I knew of. I squirted soap into my hand and feverishly scrubbed at the spot. It didn't hurt anymore, but I could quickly feel the skin growing raw under my attack. Forcing myself to stop, I rinsed the soap off and put a cold, damp paper towel against the mark. Maybe it was just a rash that would go away. I stumbled back into the other room to find that the screen was still dark, though the reel continued to turn with no signs of running out of film. 
I was moving to switch the projector off when the connected speaker crackled to life. A single distorted phrase poured out of them like a cloudy poison before the machine died on its own. Be seeing you. We decided to make a cursed film. I once had a film professor tell our class that making horror movies was like the old western prospectors that would pan for gold. He queued up a clip from a scene from some black and white cowboy movie that showed a skinny, raw-boned, shrunken little monkey of a man in overalls and a flipped berm hat tugging a mule up the edge of the river before getting out his metal pan. He'd said, with a derisive sniff, that people made horror movies because they were cheap to make, expectations were low, and if you hit it big, well, they were very profitable. The reality, of course, was that most never found more than a few gold flakes. His point was to convince us that horror was a creatively bankrupt and shallow genre and that wasting our time on it was a fool's errand. What he actually accomplished, at least as me and my friends in the class were concerned, was simply to reconfirm our opinion that he was an out-of-touch, pompous ass. Horror movies could be made cheaply, that's true, and depending on the script and the crew's ability to do less with more, you could make a really cool movie for a fraction of the cost of, say, fantasy or period drama. But besides all that... It was one simple fact that caused our little filmmaking group to make our first post-graduation project a scary movie. Because horror is badass. We threw around a few different ideas for weeks. Production needed to be aggressively economical. We didn't want to do any of the tired sub-genres without a fresh approach, and we had none. So, no demonic possession, no film crews as characters inexplicably trapped in the woods, and no fucking haunted houses. Initially, we were trying to avoid using the found footage format entirely, but look, it's just a lot cheaper and easier for some things. You still have to do your best, of course, but if there's a rough edge here or there, well, audiences are a lot more forgiving of sloppy camera work and bad lighting when you're a found footage film. And we had a decently cool idea that seemed like it might actually work. The cursed film genre isn't anything new, right? Aside from the big ones like The Ring, you've got more and more smaller films popping up all the time. Some are found footage, some are mockumentaries, and some are just... Well, they're more experimental. I'd gone with Jacob, our group's unofficial leader and director, to a couple of underground film festivals and seen some pretty weird shit. He'd agreed with me that he didn't want to go too extreme... The film needed to be marketable and have a chance at a film festival that didn't take place in an abandoned bottling plant, but he did think he had a neat twist. We'd make a found footage movie about making a found footage movie. Okay, pretty standard stuff so far. I've seen dozens of these the crew is the victim kind of things, and they usually leave me pretty cold. Maybe it's just because I'm in the business, but I usually find their acting and their work on the film, they're supposedly making pretty inauthentic, and it just takes me out of it. 
And I get it. You've got to work with what you've got, but you're not going to get the best actors in every role. And we're supposed to be moving away from cliché, not running into its arms. But wait, he said, there's more. The cast, which would also be most of the crew, would only be aware of the surface plotline. They'd all think we were making a found-footaged cursed movie about a film crew that runs afoul of... whatever. An evil skinwalker, or the reincarnated soul of a serial killer. They'd have scenes where they filmed the movie, and they'd have scenes where they were picked off one by one. What they didn't realize is that there was a third layer, a deeper story, below the movie they were making in the movie they thought they were starring in. One where they got picked off for real. Our sound editor, Katie, she'd get snatched in the parking lot after a midnight shoot. The writers, Paul and Sarah, they'd get taken into their apartment and then a cryptic video of their abduction would be sent to me. Jacob said it'd be part of his third realer story that I'd show the video to him and we'd agree that it was just them throwing a weird tantrum because of some of the changes he was making to the script. I'd be the next to go, followed by our cameraman, Brad. At the end, only Jacob would be left. We were drinking when Jacob first told me his idea, but the intensity with which he was telling me all this cut through most of the alcohol. He wasn't kidding. And yeah, it was an interesting idea, but are you talking about like really hurting them or something? I shouldn't have had to ask the question. I should have known that something was deeply wrong that I felt I needed to. I'd known Jacob for nearly three years, and while he could be very arrogant and hard to deal with at times, he wasn't a bad guy. I never seen him do anything violent or physically dangerous to anyone, but at the same time, I considered him my friend, but I didn't trust him. He had a hardness underneath his big ideas and driven enthusiasm that, well, it made me question exactly how far he was willing to go. My stomach nodded as I said the words, and I felt a rush of relief as his eyes widened in shock. What? Jesus, of course not! Fuck, man, I'm not crazy. I gave a relieved laugh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know, but how would that work? How are we going to make them all disappear if they aren't in on the joke? I mean, we could just tell them as it comes, but it's kind of lame if we're just having a series of conversations about, gosh, I wonder where Katie went, and there's no action. He grinned, his eyes taking on that hard twinkle I didn't like. Oh, we'll have footage. Plenty of it. Look, here's the deal. I've gotten us some backing. Not just money, but a couple of guys that are trained professionals. They're the real deal. They do bodyguard jobs, hostage rescues, the whole thing. These are the types some rich guy hires when a kid gets snatched during spring break. I tried to break in, but he just looked away and kept going. Anyway, this Asian company my dad does a lot of business with. They have... A small film division. They don't want to come into the project as a full producer or anything, but they are willing to invest some cash in a couple of their top security guards to do the extra scenes. My stomach began to twist into another knot. You're joking again, right? Jacob frowned. No, <laughs> this is awesome. 
why would I be joking? It's not like they're going to get hurt. They're just going to be taken and secured in a location long enough for me to explain what's going on. No big deal. I sat back in my chair. No big deal. They'll be terrified. Some strange dudes grabbing them and carrying them off somewhere, and you'll have them in some costume or something, right? What if they fall or run into traffic, or what if one of them has a gun? I don't know what Katie or Paul does, but I'm pretty sure Brad goes deer hunting and Sarah already gets panic attacks and he raised his hands. Slow your roll, man. These are professionals. They're going to get them in safe spots. They pick the time and the place. The only rules they have is that they cannot hurt them or let them get hurt. And they have to keep their body cams rolling until I say cut. (sighs) But even if that's true, it's still a fucking dirty trick to play on your friends. They'll hate us, maybe sue us, and they sure as hell won't finish working on the film. Jacob grinned. Won't they? See, the money I'm getting from the investors, it's not going into shooting it. That's already covered well enough. Instead, it's going into $25,000 completion bonuses for each of us. When they get taken, safely taken, I'll immediately go to them and tell them what's up that we wanted to get their real reactions, their raw emotion, that everything is fine, that they just need to stay in the nice hotel room they've been given for a couple of weeks while we wrap up principal. After that, they go back to whatever work they left on the film, and when it's all done, if they've stuck it out, they get 25000 He snickered. Let's see if any of them hate me then. He studied my silent stare for a moment before pressing on. Besides, when we get to looking for a distributor, think of all the press we can generate. Interviews, whole articles about how the movie was made. We'll all be fucking horror rock stars before we're done. I shrugged. My head was aching and I didn't know what to do. It was a lot of money and we could all use it. And as pushy as Jacob could be, he was also very competent and professional when it came to work. If he said it was safe and legit, it probably was. I just, look, we have to be really careful with this, okay? These are real people, not characters in a movie, and they're our friends. If either of us decides to pull the plug, or if any of them aren't cool once you explain everything, we stop, okay? Jacob's eyes lit up as he nodded. Of course, of course. I wouldn't have it any other way. We started filming the next week. My primary roles were assistant director and editor, and I spent my time between being on sets and reviewing the prior dailies. Everything was going just okay. The surface story was pretty bland, but we had good luck with locations, and the weather had cooperated so far. Everyone's acting was, well, it was passable, but everyone was too stiff and self-aware. Maybe it was because I was watching and re-watching the footage, but it became increasingly clear that there was no real danger, no real stakes. Just amateur filmmakers playing at being amateur actors. That's when Katie went missing. Jacob had told me he wouldn't tell me exactly what was going to happen when, so it would be easier for me to hide what I knew to the others. I'd been expecting her to go early, but not quite so fast. Brad or I could cover the basic sound capture, but it wouldn't be anywhere near as good as what she could do. Still, when she didn't show up or answer her phone, I guess that Jacob's secret third movie had started. Everyone was worried about Katie at first, but then we got a mass text from her number saying she'd had to fly out to be with her mother in Colorado. 
emergency surgery or something. It was easy enough to fake, but no one was suspicious at that point. The next one to go was supposed to be Paul and Sarah, but it wasn't. It was Brad. He had been on a lunch break, and he never came back. We were shooting at a rest stop at the time, so there weren't a lot of places to look, but there was no sign of him at all. No answer from his phone, either. Brad had ridden out with Jacob that day, so his car wasn't left behind, but when Sarah went by his house the next day, it was sitting in his driveway. No sign of Brad, though, and she couldn't get anyone to the door when she knocked, despite the fact that it was early in the morning and he lived with his girlfriend. It was at that point I started getting really worried. Jacob had said that we needed to keep radio silent about the secret movie while we were filming to avoid any slip-ups or arousing the other suspicion. After each abduction, he told me he'd just text me their name and a thumbs-up emoji after he talked to them and everything was cool. He'd done it for Katie an hour after we'd broke for the night. He did it for Brad the evening after we spent hours searching for him around the rest stop, Jacob filming all the time. I didn't have any reason to think he was lying, but I also couldn't be sure he wasn't. What if they had gotten hurt? What if they were super pissed and wouldn't agree to anything? Would he force them to stay somewhere anyway just to keep the movie going? I didn't think so, but by the third day after Brad's disappearance, I couldn't take it anymore. I needed to talk to him, to talk to them. When I approached Jacob about it, he just glared at me. You know that's not possible. We have to keep this shit tight. We've already wasted half a week petting up Paul and Sarah just to keep them going. I need their last three scenes done before we can move on to you and then the finale. I frowned. And that's the other thing. Why did you do them out of order? Brad was supposed to be the last except for me. As it is, I'm having to do video, audio, and editing now. He snorted. (laughs) Brad's camera work sucks, so that'll be an improvement. And I had to mix it up, so you'll look tense too. Not being mean, but your acting is balls. But since Brad, you've got a lot more organic, a lot more real. All of you had. He wasn't wrong. There had been a palpable tension since Katie's disappearance, and it had only grown with Brad missing. It was all starting to feel like something powerful, unique. And that was exciting, especially if we could keep the wheels from coming off before we were done. Still, the gnawing in my belly demanded I try one more time. Can you have them call me, at least? Let me see how they're doing. Jacob raised an eyebrow. I told you, they're all fine. Thumbs up, remember? If you don't trust me, then you're free to quit the film. I'm sure everybody will be happy to split up your share of, well, everything that's going to come from this. He just stopped and stared at me until I dropped my eyes and shrugged. Okay then, let's get back out there while we have some light left. Four days later, I was standing outside Paul and Sarah's apartment building. The 6th through 8th floor was engulfed in flames and I knew from experience that their home was on the 7th. Jacob was beside me, screaming and crying, shouting to the firemen to please save his friends. Maybe to a passerby it would have seemed genuine... Jacob's a much better actor than I am. When he turned to look at me, his face a drawn O of despair, I saw that same glinting hardness in his eyes that I've always feared deep down because I didn't understand it. Now I was beginning to. 
It was the gleam of unrelenting, terrible will. I could shed mercy and morality when it suited. It was a cold and reptilian drive that said that nothing mattered but the chase and the kill and the feed. I just thought he was driven, but Jacob was far more than that. He was a monster. And as I recoiled in horror from him, from what he had done, his expression didn't change. His eyes didn't alter. The only reaction he had to my stepping away was to subtly tug at the place that the body cam nestled on his shirt. Apparently, I'd stepped out of frame. I'm writing this now, months after Katie and Brad went missing, and Paul and Sarah's bodies were found melted together in their bathroom. I didn't write this before, tell anyone about this before, because I'm a coward. After the day of the fire, I drove home, packed up my shit, and went to the other side of the country. Aside from emailing my parents periodically, I haven't had contact with anyone from my old life. My hope was that if I stayed quiet and out of the way, Jacob would just leave me alone, that he'd likely be unable to find me given the steps I'd taken to secure anonymity, but even if he did, he would see that I wasn't worth the risk and exposure to come after me now. That's the very argument I made when he called me this morning. I told him I had a detailed account of what had happened, written up and ready to be sent to authorities if I went missing or turned up dead. And I didn't want any trouble, and I knew I was implicated in some of it, but if he started coming around, he'd leave me no choice but to expose both of us. He'd listen to my rambling threats patiently, and when I was done, he gave a short, hard laugh. <laughs> That's okay, kid. You tell whoever you want to. Like they say, there's no such thing as bad publicity. But I'm out. Just leave me out. It's over with. Done. His voice was rougher now, a trace of humor gone. Nothing is done until the film is finished. Then let me stay on and help you. We can finish it together. Jacob paused a moment as though considering the offer before responding. Eh, I appreciate the thought, but it just won't work. Your contribution to the film is meant to be on screen this time, and besides, you know my rule. What? What rule? The director always gets the final cut. I'll be seeing you. <laughs>